Be seated, please. We had lived in Peru uh, for about two and a half years when the church that we had planted about a year and a half before that um, had its first wedding. You can go ahead and pull up the picture of the couple that's, that was getting married whenever you, you get there. Um, so this couple was getting married, which was an exciting time. Yeah, there they are. Um, so this is first church, this brand new mission church. Now here's the thing. We lived there for two and a half years, so we thought we had things about figured out by then. You know, after two and a half years, we felt pretty good about speaking Spanish. We felt pretty good about the culture. And so we get this wedding. And this couple, we were pretty close to them, so they came to me and my wife, and they asked us to be the godparents of the ring. Now every couple that gets married in Peru has two sets of godparents. You've got the regular godparents who are responsible for helping financially and dispensing advice over the years, and then the godparents of the ring, and they'd asked us to be that. And we didn't know what that was, but we said, yeah, that sounds good. That's an honor, right? Well, it turns out the godparents of the ring have to buy the wedding rings. Yeah. We didn't know that up front. So about $500 later, um, we got them their nice new wedding rings. And went to the wedding, although I would add that I always thought it would have been cooler, instead of being called the godparent of the ring, to be called the lord of the rings. I don't know, just saying. Um, so we're the godparents of the ring. We didn't know what to expect. We show up at this wedding, and it turns out that we're a part of the wedding party. Not just buying the rings, but we are at the reception table. And actually, during the wedding, we sat down right by the couple that was getting married. So you see, you can tell who is not the Peruvians in this picture. So we're seated there. We've got, uh, Gabby was almost two at that point in time. We weren't expecting to have to drag a two-year-old through this or a year-and-a-half-year-old through this process, but it was fine. Um, about, see, that was in March of 2012. A couple months later, Mother's Day rolled around. And we get a call early on Sunday morning. They celebrate Mother's Day in Peru. And we get a call early Sunday morning, and it's the girl who got married, and she said, I have a present or a gift for your wife. And we really cool. On Mother's Day, the godmother of the ring gets a present. So she brought over this bowl of delicious Peruvian food. And this girl is an, an excellent cook. Um, it's a big bowl full of potatoes, Peruvian potatoes. By the way, Peru is the capital of the potato, not Idaho. 3,000 different types of potatoes. Some stuffed peppers. It was great. And I actually took a picture of it because in addition to the potatoes and the peppers was a whole roasted cooey. Um, or a whole roasted guinea pig. This is an actual picture of the gift that my wife received for Mother's Day. It was great. I didn't have to buy her anything, right? She got this for, for Mother's Day. Um, if you still can't figure it out, there are the teeth right there. Um, that's the guinea pig that runs right there. Um, she tried it, so she said she could, then I ate the rest of it. Um, so Father's Day rolled around, right? You know what I got? I didn't get squat for Father's Day. I don't know what the deal was. This was one of those moments that we thought we had Peru figured out. We thought we knew what the culture was like. And things like this happens and you realize, I don't know near as much as I thought I knew about living in Peru. There's another thing that I thought I knew growing up. Um, to me, this was every dog. Growing up, I was scared. I was scared to death of dogs. Seriously. Um, Every dog was an agent of Satan sent to attack and destroy me, at least in my mind. Did not like them, scared to death of them. We got married um, 12 years ago, so 11 years ago, about a year after we got married, my wife 
convinced me that we needed a dog, and I'd always said, no dog, but definitely no inside dog. And if we were to get an inside dog, that dog will never sleep in my bed with me. Yeah. Uh, so we got this dog, and this is Banjo. Um, and as cheesy as it sounds, he changed the way I think about dogs. I love dogs now because of this, this little guy. He's 11 years old. He's made a, a move to Peru and back, so he's been through a lot. He's pretty old. This is, I need to update this picture. He's a little grayer now than he used to be. Um, see, I thought I had dogs figured out, and the reality is I did not, and I did not know as much as I thought I knew about dogs. And I think that's the reality of life. We think we know a lot, but if we're honest with ourselves, there's so much that we don't know. In reality, we face just a ton of uncertainty. And I think this is especially difficult to admit because we have access to so much information literally at the tip of our fingers, right? The vast majority of you could pull a phone out of your pocket right now and find out anything you wanted to find out right here, right now. I wonder, I don't know the history of this church. I wonder what the the founders of the Winchester Church of Christ would think of your capabilities right here, right now in church. And because of all of that information that's so available, I think it's difficult for us to admit that there's just so much that we don't know. There is so much about which we are uncertain. But we are, and we face uncertainty in our families, in our finances, with your kids, with your health. Everybody knows we think about politics in our country. There's a lot of uncertainty about what's going on. Maybe you face some uncertainty with your retirement fund or people that you love and where they're going to go and what they're going to do. Maybe for those of you who are younger, you face uncertainty about what you're going to do next. Are you going to go to college? What are you going to major in? Can you afford to go to college? You're going to go to co- what are you going to do? And we could go on and on and on about all the things about which we are uncertain. And in the middle of all of that uncertainty, the really good news is that this book is full of stories Real-life stories that were written during and take place, took place during times of extraordinary uncertainty. If we were to go around this entire auditorium and ask everybody, what's your favorite passage? What's your favorite psalm? What's your favorite Bible story? Nearly all of them would have taken place during a time of uncertainty. Nearly all of them. You see, here's, here's the reality about this book. It's not about happily ever after. It's not about how everything went great and on Monday I got a job and on Tuesday I got a raise and on Wednesday one of my kids became a professional athlete on Thursday the other got into med school on a scholarship. No, the whole wrinkle-free life, happily ever after thing, you don't find it in here. You don't. What you do find over and over again are people who find themselves in times of extraordinary uncertainty. In the middle of, and in the middle of that uncertainty, just when it seems as if God has completely vanished from the scene, they discover that God hasn't gone anywhere at all and He has been intricately involved in the story the entire time. Let me give you three or four examples of that. The first example is Joseph. And the young man did read from the right passage this morning. You're probably wondering, but Genesis 37 was where we wanted him to read. So Genesis 37, turn there for just a minute. Three or four passages I want you to see. And what I want you to see is the incredible uncertainty 
that the people in these stories find themselves in. Now we're just going to dive in into the middle of big... The story of Joseph is massive. It just goes from here all the way to the end of Genesis. We're just going to pull some snippets out of the stories. And we're going to read this one again. We'll start with verse 23. So Joseph has agreed with his father, agreed to do what his father wanted him to do and go find, check on his brothers. So the brothers are out tending the flocks. Joseph is going to go check on them. That's the context here, verse 23. Now when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. What nice brothers Joseph has if you're reading this story for the very first time. And I love this next phrase. Then they sat down to eat. As if it was nothing. Hey, we've just thrown our brother into a pit. We don't know if we're going to kill him. And we're just going to chow down right now. So imagine you're Joseph in this situation. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. What a nice guy he is, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. How nice of these guys, right? Instead of killing their brother, which was their original plan, They cast him into the pit and they see some people who are on their way to Egypt, a band of merchants basically, and they say, hey, let's sell our brother. Instead of killing him, let's sell him into slavery. Now you may think that you have trouble with your siblings because your sister tries on your clothes without asking. Imagine what Joseph is going through here. Can you imagine the uncertainty that Joseph must have felt as he sits in this pit and he listens to his brothers decide if they're going to kill him or sell him into slavery? Can you even begin to imagine? And if you read the rest of this story of Joseph, if you read the rest of the book of Genesis, Joseph finds himself in an uncertain situation after uncertain situation. It just happens over and over and over again. It would appear, if you're reading this and you're not a person of faith, it would appear as if God has completely abandoned Joseph. That's what you would think if you read the story of Joseph. But when you get to the end of the story, particularly chapter 45 and chapter 50, you find statements like these. Joseph says things like, well, they meant it for evil, referencing his brothers, but God meant it for good. You read the rest of the story and you discover that God didn't abandon Joseph, that God was with Joseph the entire time. Or another example, I think about David. Turn your Bibles for just a second to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 15, and this is just a small snippet of a long story. David's family situation by this point is a mess. And you get to this point, and one of his sons, Absalom, has decided to rebel against his father, and he's raised up an army to take over the kingship. We're just going to read a couple of verses, starting with verse 12. And while Absalom, that's David's son who's decided that he wants to be the king, while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, you think you got problems with your kids, and maybe you've had some problems with your kids over the time. Can you imagine being awakened one morning like David was and being told, 
yeah, your son, he's rebelling against you. He's raised up an army and you better get out of town before he comes into town, takes your kingship, and maybe kills you. Can you imagine the uncertainty that David must have felt during this moment? It would appear as if that God has completely abandoned David. And you read the rest of the story, and there's some pretty rough stuff that David goes through. But you jump into the New Testament, and how is David described? He's still described as a man after God's own heart. And he's still viewed by, his, by God's people, by the Jews in the first century, as a hero. It would appear as if God's abandoned him. Can you imagine the uncertainty that he's faced? But you read the rest of the story and you come to discover that God's with him the entire time. Let me give you one more Old Testament example. Go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, and you could describe this maybe as Miriam of God on the screen or Moses' parents. Miriam's kind of intricately involved in this. We're going to start with chapter 1, verse 22. It's the last verse, and then the first couple of verses in chapter 2. So chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh... So context is God's people are in Egypt and they have become slaves there. There's a new Pharaoh that's come along that doesn't like them, so they've become these slaves. Uh, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. We'll just stop there for a minute. Can you imagine being a young family, a Jewish young family in Egypt during this time period? And you're pregnant. There's no ultrasounds. You don't know if it's going to be a boy or a girl. But you know that if you have a boy, the Egyptians are going to take your son and they're going to kill him. Can you imagine the uncertainty that these folks lived in? They're slaves and now they've got this. It would appear as if God has completely abandoned His people when you read this story. Here's what happens in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived. It's going to be a boy or a girl. They had to be scared and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. They try to hide him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, so it gets too big or too loud, she could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Can you imagine the uncertainty that Moses' mother must have felt. And Miriam, as she stands by, the rest of the verses say, and it's as if Miriam, or rather Moses' mother, puts the baby in a basket and then kicks him off into the Nile River as if to say, if it's between the Egyptian butchers and the crocodiles, I'll take my chances with the crocodiles. Can you imagine the uncertainty that she must have faced and the uncertainty that surrounded this entire situation? But you read the rest of this story, and who is this baby? This is baby Moses. The man that God eventually uses to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. It would seem as if God's abandoned his people. You read the rest of the story and you discover that God hasn't gone anywhere at all. Let me show you one more and it's in the New Testament. We talk about small children and babies. It's emotional for us and it's emotional. You read a story like this. But a similar story happens in the New Testament and it all surrounds the life of Jesus. So Matthew Chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men or the the magi have come and they've told King Herod, hey, we're looking for this this baby that's a king. And Herod, who was known for being jealous and paranoid, says, oh, we can't have that. He says, go find him and come back. They don't do that. They trick him and they head out a different way. And he gets really mad. Here's what happens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that's the wise men, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So, part one of this is, did you know that Jesus and his parents were political refugees? A lot of talk about refugees these days. Jesus was one as a child, as a baby. So they have to run to get away from this, this angry king. Verse 14, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Okay, so can you imagine the uncertainty? Imagine you're a parent of a young boy in and around Bethlehem during this time period, knowing, can you imagine the Roman soldiers or the Jewish soldiers, whoever he sent, when they ride into town and they're gathering up all the little boys, it appears as if God has completely abandoned His people. That God is completely absent from this scene. Jesus was born into and grew up during a time of incredible uncertainty. Now here's my point. You read story like this, over and over and over again throughout the Bible, over and over and over again, it seems as if the bad guys have won and the evil kings have won and the evil gods of the pagan nations have won. And just at the point when you think that God's completely vanished from the scene, you discover that God hasn't gone anywhere and that He is absolutely still in control. And so this morning, if there's one thing that I could leave you with, there's one thing that you might attempt to remember, it's this. And this message, I think, is from all of Scripture. Story after story seems to prove it. As you face uncertainty, in the midst of uncertainty, God is certain. And He is absolutely still in control. In the midst of uncertainty that we all face, God is certain. And He's still in control. Let me give you one more example from from the Scriptures. Let's imagine today that we've got the apostles with us. That'd be kind of cool, right? So the apostles... Um, come in, and we have them lined up here on this, this long front row. I think all 12 of them could fit. They're probably little than us. We've got them all down here, and we get to interview them. That's your, your Sunday night sermon. We get to interview the apostles. That'd be pretty cool. So we ask them, when was the darkest moment of your time with Jesus? When was the moment that you thought, you know what, we have completely wasted our time? What are we doing? I wonder what they would say. I think they might say, it was when... We gathered in that upper, upper room around the Passover table and Jesus told us that not only would things not get better, they would only get worse. And then we watched as they arrested Him and they tried Him completely unfairly. And then we watched them crucify Him. When was the darkest moment of our time with Jesus? when we realized that we had completely wasted our time following Him because He was dead. But then if I, I wonder if we were to ask them, when was the brightest time? When was God most active? Maybe we'd throw out some suggestions. Was it when Jesus healed the, the blind guy? Or no, maybe, maybe it was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That was an incredible moment. I wonder what they would say. Maybe they would say, they'd look back 2,000 years and they'd say, the brightest moment, God was most active during those same hours when it seemed He was the most absent. God was doing the most 
when it seemed in the moment that he was doing the least. And maybe they look at us and say, hey, you've had 2,000 years to look back on the events that surrounded the life of Jesus and especially the crucifixion of Jesus, and you can celebrate it today, and you can thank God for his grace and for the forgiveness that you have through the crucifixion of Jesus. But for us, in those moments, we thought it was game over because Jesus was dead. And so even for the apostles, even for the apostles, they faced moments of incredible uncertainty during those last few hours of the life of Jesus, and then after his death, before his resurrection. Can you imagine the uncertainty that they faced? Was God in control? Was God up to anything during those, during those moments? Yeah, God was doing his greatest work during what must have been the apostles' most uncertain moments. In the midst of uncertainty, God is certain. And he is still in control. Now that's a hard message for American Christians, and here's why. We equate God's presence with prosperity and forward progress. Right? When God's with us, that's when things go really good. When God's with us, that's when we're making the most money and things are going well and everything's moving forward. But that's not the message that you read in Scripture. In Scripture, God is most active and God is most present when His people are facing times of uncertainty. In the midst of uncertainty, God is certain and He's absolutely still in control. As I think about uncertainty, and Joseph specifically asked me to to share this with you guys, um, I think about nearly exactly four years ago, um, August 17th, 2012, um, we had come into the United States for a two-month furlough. Our son Connor was born on July 25th, um, kind of a high-risk pregnancy, so he was born... um, He's four now, obviously, and is here. Uh, he was in the NICU for a couple of weeks and got out, and so we were waiting on his, his birth certificate, which is slower than you think um, here in the state of good old state of Tennessee. We were waiting on that birth certificate. We get the birth certificate, get his passport, and we were going back to Peru. It was just a furlough, so we were reporting to churches. Um, about a week after he got out of the hospital, we went for a routine checkup with, with our daughter, who was two at the time, um, and it was a, a heart echo for those of you who kind of know what that is, and it took a long time for him to do it. It was at Vanderbilt. It's one of the things, those things we didn't want to do. We'd already had, she had a little heart murmur. The doctor in Peru had checked it out and said it was fine. We were confident with that. Um, but one of the elders at one of our supporting churches was her pediatrician, and he insisted that she go to Vanderbilt and do this. So, you know, your missionaries and the money, so we're like, okay, we'll go, we'll go get this checked out. So we did the good thing, and, and I'm thankful that we did. Um, it took a long time to do that ultrasound of her heart. And finally they said, we've seen something. And they used the phrase accidentally. Um, I don't think it was an accident. We need to send you downstairs to another department. So we did. We were kind of confused. So we went um, to an elevator and went from the seventh floor, I think, down to the sixth floor. And I'll never forget the moment that we got off of the elevator and looked up and saw the sign that said pediatric oncology. The last sign you want to see, see when you have a two-year-old. We walked through those doors, and that became, began a series of events um, that day on August 17th of 2012, uh, where our two-year-old was diagnosed with a rare form of liver cancer um, called hepatoblastoma. Um, the plan immediately began for her to start chemo. Um, I put these pictures up, but she's usually not with me. I'll flash through those. I'm not paying attention. Okay, not paying attention. 
typical, right? Um, and, and it began this process where they began chemotherapy. At this point in time, I'd asked the doctor, I said, okay, we're, we're missionaries in Peru, which is always an awkward question when they're like, so where are you from? And they're like, oh, we live in Peru. So I said, hey, can, can, we, uh, can we go back to Peru? Is this stopping that? And she said, yes, absolutely. Uh, we'll do chemo. We'll get this tumor out of her liver, and, and we're on. you're back to Peru in, in nine, to, nine months to a year. So we held out hope. Um, unfortunately, chemotherapy did not work to shrink this tumor. And so two months later, Vanderbilt transferred us. It's never a good thing when Vanderbilt transfers you. They transferred us to Pittsburgh. Uh, for more tests, and in Pittsburgh, they said the only solution here, chemo's not working, the only solution is a liver transplant. In those moments, we knew, she was two and a half at the time, um, because of the long-term needs she would have because of a liver transplant, we couldn't go back to Peru. It, just, it wasn't going to happen, we couldn't do it. And I remember, that was in October, they tried for two or three months with the chemo, and still did chemo, of course, um, before and after the transplant. I remember laying in bed waiting as we waited for the transplant for a couple of months just only had to wait a couple of months and wondering awake couldn't sleep what in the world are we going to do what are we going to do my job my work isn't we loved living in Peru we loved our work there what are we going to do now all of our stuff was in Peru missionaries normally rent when they move somewhere we bought we we were going to live there for a long time we had just purchased our apartment loved our apartment we were going to be there for a long time now we've got to sell this thing in another country, and we're stuck with a very, very sick little girl. What are we going to do? Our dog, Banjo, the, the dog I showed you, Banjo, was still in Peru. And beyond all of that stuff, that's all just physical. Our daughter was very, very sick. And the moments of uncertainty were moments that I'd, I'd never felt before. Fortunately, she got the transplant after a couple months, a bunch more chemo. Chemo's horrible. I'm a two-year-old. Um, She's had multiple problems since then, but we're thankful to God um, that she's doing well. This is the four-year-old that was born as all this began, um, and her. Here's what I learned. I think back on this story and all that happened and all of the uncertainty that we faced. If I could say, okay, here's, here's what I learned more than anything else. It's this. That in the midst of our uncertainty, God was certain. And he was absolutely still in control. In our darkest moments, when we didn't know what we were going to do next, and what God had in store next, or if she was even going to survive, we'd... here's what I learned through it all. Even though it, there were moments that we wondered if God had abandoned us. Why didn't, he, why didn't chemo, why couldn't chemo work the first time so we could go back to Peru? I remember praying and asking why? Why haven't you done something? Will you please do something? It appeared as if God had in some ways abandoned us and was absent from the scene. But when you get through situations like that, you get to the end of the day and what you discover is that God hasn't gone anywhere. That in the midst of my uncertainty, God was certain and He was absolutely still in control. Now, I don't tell you all that to make you feel sorry for Him because here's the reality. All of us at times have things that keep us awake at night. Everybody does. Everybody has uncertainties. Maybe you don't have any right now, but you will or you have had uncertainties. And those are the things that keep you up at night. For some of you, you don't know, you don't know about your job situation. You don't know if your job's going to last through the end of the year. Or you don't know if there's going to be job cuts or pay cuts or what you'll do if there is a job cut or a pay cut. 
For some of you, maybe you're uncertain about your kids. Maybe you've got grown kids who've given up on their faith. And it keeps you up at night. And you don't know what they're going to do next, and you don't know if they'll come back to God, and it scares you to death, and it keeps you up. For some of you, it's, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe nobody else knows. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. And it keeps you up at night. Maybe there's somebody that you love deeply in your family. Maybe parents or a sibling whose marriage is on the rocks. You're so uncertain about what's next. Maybe for you, your uncertainty lies in the fact that you don't know if the medicine is going to work. Or the chemo. Or maybe it's for your, one of your parents or a brother or sister or your spouse. You don't know if the medicine is going to work. Maybe for some of you, it's as I mentioned earlier, you don't know what you're going to do next. If you can afford to go to college, if Maybe you want to go to a certain place. You don't know if you can afford it. You don't know if the scholarships are going to be there, what you're going to major in. If you do go to college, or even if you're going to go to college at all, or maybe for some of you, you're retired, and you don't know if your retirement's going to last as long as you hoped it would last. The list could go on and on and on and on. Now, here's what I want you to know. In the midst of all of the uncertainty that you might face, even though it seems maybe that God isn't as present in your life as you would have liked Him to be, learn from all of the stories of Scripture. That God hasn't gone anywhere. That He's absolutely still involved in your life and in your story. And in the midst of your uncertainty, He is certain and He's still in control. Now, some of you might be saying, if you're facing a severe uncertainty right now, Matt, that's fine. That's a cute little message you've got there on the screen. Thank you. But that doesn't change anything. It doesn't make me well. It doesn't bring back my spouse. It doesn't bring my child back to God. That's nice, but that doesn't change anything. Believe me, I know. It doesn't change anything. Here's what it does. This principle allows me to embrace the uncertainty of life with the certainty of knowing that God is in no matter what the uncertainty that I'm facing, whether it's financial, whether it's health, whether it's spiritual, whether it's economy, whether it's like whatever it is for you that keeps you up at night, please know that God hasn't gone anywhere. He's absolutely still in control. Now the biggest uncertainty that you will ever face in your life is the uncertainty that sin brings and the guilt that sin brings. And so today we would tell you not because we think we're better, or because we think we've got it all figured out, we would tell you, if you're still, if sin kind of has control over you, and you're facing an uncertain future because of your sin, that there's a better way to live. That you don't have to live that way. And again, it's not because we think we're better, it's because we've experienced God's grace and His forgiveness. And so today, if you are in sin, if you need to get rid of your sins, if that's your uncertainty, then I know the folks here would love to help you Maybe you need to be baptized today. I know the folks here would love to help you with that. Maybe you need the prayers of this church. Maybe you're facing some uncertainties that you need to give to this church. I know they said some elders are going to be in the back later. I bet they would love to pray with you about some uncertainty that you might be facing. One of the members of the, the Cusco mission team that um, Mitchell and Rachel are going to be a part of, um, named Gary, a uh, great guy, incredible personal evangelist. I mean, just incredible. I've never seen anybody like him. Um, he's had a, an incredible amount of uncertainty in his life. In my, in my mind, an unfair share 
of uncertainty. He grew up in a state adjacent to Tennessee um, in a rural setting, I think, for the most part. But he was surrounded by drugs and alcohol and sex and all this horrible stuff that children should not be surrounded by. Um, As he got a little older, things got worse. His mother had been married multiple times. And their most recent stepfather uh, had some pretty severe problems. And Gary, along with his sister's brother and his mother, they had to live on the run because their stepfather was after their stepmother. So they'd live here for a little while, live there for a little while. Severe poverty. He describes one time watching his brother climb into a dumpster, come out with a jar of peanut butter, and spoon with his hand the peanut butter into his mouth covered with ants. That's how hungry they were. That's how horrible things were for them. When he was 12 years old, he was out with his friends playing, he came back home, and there were police cars in the front yard. The stepfather had found them and murdered his mother. They were placed in foster care, in Christian foster care. This family adopted them. Gary was baptized as a teenager. They sent him to Freed Hardeman. He still had some bumps along the way, some uncertainties to face. He spent a year in Iraq. Incredible story, and now he's a missionary in Cusco, Peru. He does incredible, incredible things. In my mind, Gary has faced an unfair share of uncertainty. It's not fair what he's faced. So I asked him, what would you say to, something, to this point? In the midst of uncertainty, God is certain He's still in control. And I, and I wrote it down. Or I, you don't write anything down these days. It's on my phone. Here it is. Here's what Gary said in response to this. He says, for me, there are no more excuses. Time and time again, God has proven Himself to be faithful whether I wanted Him there or not, or whether I asked Him to be there or not. He's just always been there, even despite of me. And then in true Gary form, he says, I would have to be an idiot to doubt him now. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? In the midst of uncertainty, God is certain. And he's still in control. If we can help you this morning, won't you come as we stand and sing together? Oh, what a thought that Allah 